Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Free Drop Podcast with certainly my biggest name to date. The man won 10 times on the PJ Tour, 6 times on the PJ Tour Champions, including the 2013 Regions Tradition. He won 2 SA Opens, 3 million dollar titles, none other than Mr. David Frost. Now this is an interview I've wanted to secure for a number of weeks now, but hadn't quite plucked up the courage to pick up the phone and get in touch with David. But in true South African fashion, David was incredibly gracious and very willing to have a chat with a fledgling podcaster like myself, which I cannot tell you how much I appreciate. So many thanks to David for taking the time. We chat about a number of topics from his amateur career to the decision to turn pro and his initial success and the ultimate decision to transition and play in the States and fly his trade in the States, one which has certainly borne plenty of fruit. And we also delve into playing in the President's Cup and the people who have been pivotal in shaping the player that he became and remains today, from David Ledbetter to Bob Rotello, we chat about it all. So I sincerely hope you enjoy this chat with David. I'd also like to point out to you guys that I've recently started a collaboration with TN Sandwiches. They are doing amazing work in the golf media sphere through their vlog, Teared Up. Go check it out. Go give them a follow on social media. They are doing fantastic work in spite of COVID-19. So many thanks to them for being willing to help out a fledgling podcaster like myself and you're super excited for the months and years to come in collaborating with them and yeah give us a follow on on social media too at freedrop underscore podcast on instagram and at freedrop blog on facebook i'm super super keen to try and grow my social media following so that more people can appreciate the caliber of guests that i have on the show they've all got amazing stories to tell so I'd really appreciate it if you joined the journey. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with David Frost. Hey guys, welcome back to the Free Drop podcast with certainly the biggest name I've had on the podcast thus far. He won 10 times on the regular tour in the States. He's won six further times on the Champions Tour including a senior major in 2013. He's won the SO Open twice. And yeah, just one of the true greats of South African golf. David Frost, how are you doing? Frost, how are you doing? Hi, Craig. So nice to see you. Nice to see uh, Sturton making the resurgence again. Yeah, it's been a while hey, since my dad was... Uh, well, I suppose the, the most relevant certain at the moment is probably my brother who's recently uh, done okay in South Africa from a singing standpoint, but you know, certainly nothing from a golf point of view for a while, eh? Hey? Yeah, well, your dad was a household name in Cape Town. It was uh, a lot of fun sort of um, learning from him and getting to know you over the years has been, has been great. Yeah, it's actually weird, hey, like I was thinking about it in preparation for the interview. I mean, when I was when I was um, growing up and probably five or six or whatever, um, I think my earliest memory of of your golfing achievements uh, was probably when my dad would say, yo, you won the million dollar 
three times and to me then that didn't really didn't really mean much didn't really know what it what it meant in the context of a of a golf career now sort of later on i've certainly gained a deeper appreciation for the fact that you know you were able to win probably one of the more difficult events in world golf three times yeah um you know as you know sun city was a sort of a staged event it wasn't a, a tournament where uh, ha that had a lot of history um mm. big fields so again sun city was more of a a, a show for tv and you know not many people can uh, uh not many players playing so within an hour you've you've seen all three groups or four groups go through yeah, yeah. Um, um, but uh, you know it was a great event to be to be part of and looking back it uh, it surely brought a lot of fun to a lot of the viewers and in general people that traveled uh, two three hours four hours drive from mm. from sun city yeah i mean I think even though, as you as you mentioned, the, the field size was quite small. Obviously, it's expanded now, but I think given the caliber of player that would play in that event, I think people were more than happy to watch eight or, or 12 players or whatever it was. And yeah, yeah I mean, we'll get, to, we'll get to your success there in a bit. But yeah, just sort of looking, looking at your uh, profile page on Wikipedia, I think you're only the second player I've interviewed who actually has a Wikipedia page, but, um, <laughs> you know, you, you grew up in, in, in sort of, if I'm not mistaken, sort of Paul area. Yeah. Um, between, I grew up just outside of Salambosh, um, on okay. the, uh, on the Cape Town side. Mm. So, um, you know, my dad went to uh, Paul boys high, uh, as a boarder and, uh, you know, just as loving sports, uh, rugby and cricket growing up, um, it was just the thing to do was to go to a school where we didn't have to travel yeah. um, after school um, back to the farm. So it was just easier for, for him to put us in boarding school where, mm. where there were a lot more opportunities uh, to participate in sports. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting that you, you know, you went to Paul Boys, which is obviously far more renowned for its production of, of rugby players than, than golfers. But tell me about your you know, your junior golf career and I mean, was it, was it readily, a, like, was it apparent pretty early on that you were one of the better players of your particular generation? Um, well, no, I, if I compare my, my junior golf uh, um, career or, or uh, strengths, um, yeah, it was there. There were, um, there was, there were definitely signs that I, I was a decent golfer uh, competing um, in my junior days with, uh, with the guys of uh, caliber of Bernard Babas. Uh, Bernard won a lot when uh, he was 17, 16. Um, I sort of was a, sort of a late bloomer, if you, if you can almost say that. Um, I wasn't strong like a guy like Martin Lowe or even or Peter came along later, Peter Todd. But um, um, yeah, I, uh, Trevor Dodds came down and played junior golf from uh, Namibia. So, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't as, no, not that I'm strong now, but uh, I had to rely a lot on my short game. So mm. uh, junior golf, uh, I, you know, I, I started and, and um, I enjoyed it. And that kind of gave me a good sort of uh, 
stepping stone for for Amagov uh, later on. Yeah, and I mean, when when would you say you started to realize or started to see that you were starting to come into your own as as a player? I mean, were there any achievements that that stand out as sort of light bulb moments where you're like, cool, well, now I'm definitely among the the better players. Well, the if I go back just a second to um, you know, you said the rugby players and uh, Bob Boys was known more for rugby players than for golfers. Um, I also I always felt that the rugby players were sort of the motivate motivation behind me. Um, you know, they were motivated to go and practice their their rugby. The first team would practice hard on the rugby grounds after high school, after uh, regular school days, and um, I just uh, made the same sort of commitment to golf. So mm. <clears throat> I felt if they were going to work hard and 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 enjoy their sports time. Um, it was a kind of a motivation to me, and um, we had a very famous uh, rugby uh, player at at school that didn't want to participate in in rugby um, coaching, and uh, he just would pick, uh, take me from the golf course to the um, back to the boarding school on a uh, in the evenings, and his name was John Bush. He was a famous South African. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he was a good motivator for me, and then also a lot of motivation came from uh, Vernon Dixon, who we um, he ran our foundation in in Cape Town. Which mm. uh, without him, I don't think uh, we would have had a you know as good a, a junior teams as we did coming out of Western Province. <clears throat> yeah, I mean it's interesting as you know I chatted to Peter Todd I think three or four weeks ago now, and he spoke so highly of the you know that foundation system and how it helped sort of nurture the, the talent within uh, Western Province. And I mean, were you were you sort of similar to him and his friends in that, were you playing like regular events like during the holidays and, and things like that? What did your, what did your competitive um, sort of schedule look like during, during school? Well, yeah, during school, uh, I would, uh, I would go down to the golf course, uh, after my my school, uh, you know, two o'clock or so, three o'clock after lunch, I'd run down to the Paul Golf Club and I'd do my thing, hit my golf balls there, and then uh, Mr. Ush would then bring me back to boarding school. Um, and and you know, talk about the 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 junior days. Um, it was it was always nice to try and be like the guys that for me that it was nice to be like the guys that were successful. Um, you know, you, you always look up at the guys that are, are really good, and whether you're 15 and 17, or whether you're 20 and they're 25, or whether you today where I'm 60 and there's a guy that's still good at 61. I always, I always felt motivated. So, so having these guys to look up to in junior golf was what always pushed me. And if uh, if he could win, why can't I win? Mm. And then, yeah, just sort of. Uh, Transitioning past your your school days, um, I heard that you that you uh, did your national service in the in the police for um, a few years. What it, what sort of effect did that have on your on your game? Like, did you find that you weren't able to to practice and play as often, or what did that look like?
cool. Is that, is that a bit better? It's a bit frustrating now. Um, I thought it was my um, my uh, my internet. There you go. Yeah, we're gonna start over. We're gonna start yeah. over. Yo, yeah, we can do. Yo, yeah, we can. If you if you're happy to do that. Um, you wanna you wanna edit it or, uh, or I mean, just I can, add I can, it to? I can edit it. I mean, where do you think? I'm just trying to think where it got shaky. I think let's. Um, right, we asked me. We asked me about the um, military training. Uh, oh yes, okay. That I went through. Yeah. So yeah, if if you wouldn't mind just sort of touching on um, the effect that uh, doing your national service in the police, what effect that had on your on your game. Well, you know, in the beginning, we only had about a six weeks uh, uh, rigorous training uh, program that we went through that you weren't allowed off campus. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, you allowed sports parades, which was on a Tuesday and, uh, and Thursday. And I had you know, a couple of the generals that wanted to play golf. So they would take me off property and uh, I would play my golf in the afternoons uh, twice a week. And then... Um, and also, uh, when I then moved down to Cape Town, while I was full time in the police force, we had our our try uh, try monthly um, golf competitions between the Army, Navy, Air Force. So uh, so we'd play against those guys. And then when I was transferred back up to Pretoria, um, maybe a year down in Cape Town, I uh, then joined the the Services Golf Club in Pretoria. So we had our own golf course to play there, and, and they encouraged they encouraged you to play golf. So um, you know it was two years of of of, of loss, so to speak, uh, not decide, not knowing what what I was going to become or do. But mm. uh, I always just thought at that stage I would just become a good amateur golfer. Yeah, and then you see what see what happened uh, down the road. But when did you when did you first sort of get that feeling that you may want to give uh, professional golf a, a crack? Well, it was more so my goal to to play for South Africa, to become a springbok. Um, okay. and, and I competed in the SA Amateur um, two or three times. I got to the final uh, in 1981 in, uh, in Valcom. I lost to David Suddens and that's when I got my first uh, Springbok cap. Um, I think it could be 1980. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I have a nice job. I was a, a cigarette rep at the time. Uh, it's when I was finished with my uh, national service. Um, got a job as a cigarette rep with uh, Lexington. And we, uh, we, we did a lot of promotions. We did uh, the PGA in South Africa at the Wanderers. Uh, we did hang gliding. Uh, um, promotion we did a angling promotion and and i had time to play golf so between earning a nice salary a decent salary that i could afford my golf membership at royal johannesburg um i i enjoyed playing my league golf um as i say, got selected to play for the Springboks in 1980 went over to europe uh, played the british amateur and the french amateur and i did really well there out of the five guys that uh uh, that went over there was myself, Duncan Lindsay Smith, David Soddard, Willem Vincenus, Neil, and Neil James. Um, 
I, I did I did the best out of everybody. At, uh, I got to the quarterfinals of the French and I got to the third round of the British and came back and they chose three guys out of the five to go to Taiwan uh, for a stroke play tournament. And uh, the USGA didn't include me in the three-man side because they, they said to me I was, I was really a better match player than a stroke player. And that, that really upset me and I thought, well, you know, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to just give it a shot at turning pro. And then I went to my boss at Lexington. Um, Henny Lowe was his name. And I said to Henny, hey, I would. And Henny was an athlete himself. He was a, uh, a Springbok gymnast. So he understood, you know, uh, what I was trying to do. And then I also went to speak to a couple of other guys. Uh, John Bland. I drove to John, his house. And uh, he was a member at ERPM in Johannesburg. And uh, I said, John, what do you think? You know, I. You know, I was a Springbok and I played good amateur golf. I played everywhere in, in the world and I'd like to give professional golf a shot. And he said, no, he says, give it a go. And so uh, that's, that's uh, you know, leave, leaving me out of the Springbok side uh, did it for me. And uh, do you still, how, how well do you remember your, your first win? As a pro? Mm. Um, yeah, well, it was the Gordon's Gin in, uh, at Sun City in, uh, in 83 it was the first, first tournament of the 83 season. So I had okay. spent, uh, I'd spent, uh, two months down in, in Sishan where I had met my first wife and we, I, I, I had to do a, a month service. So every year when you finished your two year stint, you had a, you were called up for a month as a reservist, you know, to okay. sort of, uh, to, to stay as a reservist. And, um, I, I, I spent a lot of time down at the session golf club, which is a beautiful place to just practice and play. And, mm. uh, it's a mining town. So they have a lot of water and the golf course is in great shape. And that's why I practiced really hard from there, drove up to Sun City and, uh, I remember holding a, a chip shot on the 54th hole, uh, which was Friday, I suppose, back then. We finished Saturdays uh, to take the lead over Nick Price and uh, then started the next day uh, with the lead. And, uh, you know, beating him that day gave me a lot of confidence since he just had a successful year in, uh, in America. Are you are you very much over the years? Have you very much been like a momentum player? Um, you know, if you if you have a good tournament, you find you can sort of extend that run for, for quite a few events. You know, I I always thought that I thought I would um, be able to figure that out, but there were times where I'd had taken two weeks off and thought I'd get ready for the, the three week session. And the mm. third week, by the third week, I'll I'll have some nice momentum, and I'd come out the first week and I win. So um, yeah. uh, there was never there was never a way or a, mm. or a or a or a system for me. I would just come out and uh, enjoy my enjoy myself and uh, you know let the let the game and the, and the swings fall where they may. So yeah. I tried, but but there was never. Um, I, I had a, um, a run in 1992, 93. Um, in 92, I won a tournament in just outside Chicago called the Hardy's Classic. 
And then in 93, um, I played the Canadian Open, which I won. And then I had to go and defend the Hardys the week after, and I won again. So That's wild. I, sure. I won back-to-back -back, uh, while defending the second tournament. So that was Gee. only a, a consistent run I had. Yeah. Um, uh, winning wise, you know, I finished second or third and, but that was, a that was, a um, the only time that I won, uh, that, mm. that close together. Do you quite enjoy that aspect of golf that you never really know when like things are going to turn and, and go your way and, and when you may go through a bit of a dip? Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there's certain golf courses that favor you and certain courses that don't. So, um, you know, you uh, you just play, and and sometimes a top ten on that golf course, you feel like uh, it's a, it's a win almost. Um, yeah. But then certain courses that do favor you, uh, you feel you can win on. Uh, I remember sure. uh, West. I remember Westchester uh, in New York. I always loved the golf course. I finished. Uh, I lost in the playoff in '88 to Seve. Uh, it was a four-way playoff. Seve, myself, Ken Green, and Greg Norman. And then I ended up winning that tournament in 92. So some tournaments really made me um, feel very comfortable and, and, and a place where I could win. Um, and some, some, as I say, I felt the top 10 was almost like a win. Mm. Was it, was it like quite weird? I mean, you, you say that you're in the playoff with, with those three guys who are obviously all um, in their own right legends of the, of the game. Is it like was it, is it quite weird to to think back and think that you know in the space of eight years you went from playing improv golf and and starting to make it as an amateur to then competing with some of the best players in the world? Yeah, you know, you, you look back now and you and you put the pieces of the puzzle, you know, where you, as you've just put them. Um, but back then you you don't think about that you, you just sure. feel you you know you're in the you're in the moment and here you're being paired with uh with some of the greats so you just take it one shot at a time and uh don't think about things like that you just love the competition um and you know i i had a little edge when it came to parting uh, mm. that uh that was always something that other people sort of um, feared about me knowing that I could make uh, a putt at any stage so I, I was always in touch and then the putting would uh, take me over the top so uh, I just relied on, on my short game um, but if you look back at, at those guys that I played against uh, I also lost the playoff one year in 1986 it was only my second year on tour at the Western Open in Chicago um, Three, four guys in the playoff. It was Tom Kite, Nick Price, Fred Couples, and myself. Jeez. And um, I learned something that day, actually. Um, four guys in the playoff. And my second shot, I didn't have a clear shot to the pin. So I played for the fat side of the green instead of maybe taking a chance and going at the pin. Because in a playoff, you know, you can hit it five feet. Another guy might hit it 30 feet and he drained the putt. Mm. So in a playoff, you only get one chance, and and you got to take it as soon as it, as soon as you get it, and not think, oh, I'll just try and play for the next hole, kind of. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I learned I learned a valuable lesson there that uh, in a playoff you you can't uh, you can't not take that first shot at it.
Mm. So you you moved to the States in 85, I believe. And I remember reading on, on Facebook that at the time you had $15,000, no sponsors, and, and whatever, which I'm sure was quite a gamble. But, I mean, you found success. I think you won your first event in 88 at the, at the Southern Open, which, you know, obviously came, I think, four years after your, your win in, in Cannes in, in France. But how would you compare and, and contrast the, the difference between winning on the Euro Tour in the 80s compared to winning in, in the States at the same time? So I won that tournament in Cannes in 84 after mm -hmm. the previous week coming to the US and made the through the first stage uh, of the PGA Tour. Um, okay. That was in that was in 84. So uh, finishing second year going to going back to Europe where I was, you know, on tour there, uh, I felt quite confident um, at the state with the state of my game. And uh, luckily, I, I won the tournament. Um, and then uh actually with that money that uh, fifteen thousand dollars i won in can i sent to my uh american bank account which i just opened at the airport in orlando before i took off for paris <laughs> um so i clean not, not that i forgot about the money but i i felt when i went back for the finals uh, which was in december mm. uh, i had some money you know there to go through the tour school with um and making through the tour school, I then uh, started the year out uh, in 85 with, with this nice bank account, which was big at the time. And there it cost you about a thousand to two thousand dollars a week to play the tour, including okay. your flight, your, tra your travel, your hotel and your caddy. Um, and I felt that you know, spending two years in Europe, 83, 84, I was coming out with the guys that had just come out of college and, sure. and I felt I felt competing um, as a pro, playing, playing to make a cut every week. I was almost uh, a little bit ahead of them uh, starting mm. out. So it gave me uh, a nice uh, cushion, so to speak, that, uh, that I was there um, with guys that my age that I felt I was all ahead of. Yeah. And then you know, sing, finishing second eight times um, uh, on, the, on the PGA Tour before I won in 88, um, you know, I never thought that finishing second uh, wasn't a win either. Um, I felt finishing second was was like a mini victory in itself, and mm. and the more I just uh, kept uh, kept you know making high finishes, um, eventually the the door opened, and and it wasn't a fault of mine to finish second. Some guy might have just played better. It's not like I yeah. led and and I and I and I faulted. Mm. So, as I say, I was, whatever I accomplished, uh, whether it was 10th on the golf course, I wasn't suited for my game or, or again, finishing second, I, I, it felt like a victory too. Yeah, and I suppose. It, any, was, sorry, it was really special. Uh, it was really special winning, uh, beating Bob because, uh, you know, he was an All-American golfer and, and that meant a lot to me. And then even before that, uh, I remember finishing second to Payne Stewart at Bay Hill. I think it was 1986. Uh, Payne shot 19 under. I shot 17 under, and the next guy was Dan Pohl at nine under. Jeez. Uh, and Bay Hill being, yeah, yeah, Bay Hill being uh, Payne's uh, home golf course. Uh, he and I went neck and neck and neck. 
and uh, it was uh, that, that almost felt like a victory to me. And what is it like, you know, sort of being in contention, being up against obviously one of the more popular guys on tour, and obviously you being a South African. I mean, how did the crowd respond to to your presence on the leaderboard? Well, they didn't, especially at Bay Hill. Uh, they didn't like me at Bay Hill because uh, I was putting pressure on Payne, you know, and he yeah, was yeah, this yeah. Uh, superstar. But uh, I never had the uh, the, the tragedy, tragedies, if you want to call that, that Gary Player had where there was, uh, uh, you know, a lot of shouting and rudeness. Um, it was much more accepted um, when we played. I think the guys like, like Gary and... and um, Nick Price and Dennis Watson, they, they made it much more acceptable mm -hmm. um, for the Americans that the foreign players were good players too. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, sort of shifting back to, to South Africa, and in 86, you, you won your first SA Open. What, what did it mean to you for, for you to have your name on... on the trophy alongside, I mean, I think Gary Player won it 13 times and so many sort of legends of, of the game back home. Um, you know, winning, if I just go back to winning Sun City was, you know, it was great. Um, mm. Winning uh, your national open is something totally different. Sure. Uh, people and, and looking back today, um, winning your national open twice uh, is, is it's a lot more of uh, statue than than winning the million dollar uh, yeah. simply because the tournament has so much history and uh, and it's also moved around the country which makes it special as well so uh, winning one in johannesburg at royal in 86 and then um you know obviously for me it was special winning the uh, south african open at stellenbosch in 99 um, um uh, you know winning a national open is 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 you know one of the ultimate uh dreams uh, yeah. and and having as you say gary winning, winning it so many times your name going on that trophy it's a nice trophy it's a beautiful trophy too so um all those uh all those moments and all the the the, the celebrations that come with it uh, yeah. never gets old you know no i'm sure and is it is it weird to think that you know 13 years passed between your first victory and then and then winning at Stellenbosch in, in 99 and how much had your game sort of evolved and, and changed like were you a, a different player would you say in 99 compared to 86 um so i also I didn't compete in south africa for quite a while between 86 and 99 just because i was I was focused on on playing in in the states, um, yeah. and it was just awkward flying back and forth, um, especially January, February, when you want to sort of uh, get your money uh, money up in the states early in the year. So, and um, but yeah, so yeah, it was a big gap between the two. Um, my game had definitely uh, evolved, I'd say, from 80, uh, 86 to uh, ninety nine. Um, Obviously, my rankings, uh, you know, spoke for themselves. Yeah. Uh, I think my lowest ranking was uh, six, uh, six uh, in about ninety-two, three, four, five around there. Um, uh, so yeah, I, 
I became a better player um, in '99, as to more consistent, shall I say. Mm. Um, incidentally, in '86, when I won there, I finished second uh, five times in a row to McNulty. Or I know he won quite a few, but I finished second five times in a row, and yeah. the sixth tournament was the one at '86 uh, uh, Royal that I eventually won. At any point during that period, did you did you find yourself getting frustrated, or were you just super patient and, and, and realizing that you know your time would come? Yeah, as I say, you know, um, finishing second doesn't mean uh, a failure. Uh, mm. It just I just made myself believe that because I I could finish second, I could eventually win, but not to push the the narrative, you know. Um, um, feel feel happy with 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 coming second, and the door will eventually open. That's mm. that's all I felt. And and sort of going going back to the state. So you had your first one in '88, but then you won a further eight times in a in a six year span. I mean, what what would you say sort of changed either within your game or perhaps it was mental that that. Um, helped you kick on and really establish yourself as, as one of the best players in the world? Um, I came over uh, and, and I based myself in Orlando, Florida. Um, okay. And I worked, worked extensively with David Ledbetter. I had a few stints with Phil Ritson before that. Uh, Phil was a, a very renowned professional from uh, Johannesburg that moved to the States uh, and uh, worked in Orlando as well. And then I worked with Ledbetter. And then in 1986, 87, around there, Ledbetter suggested I go and see Bob Rotella. Okay. Uh, Bob, Bob being a sports psychologist. Um, um, and, and after I saw Bob, I, I put a lot more things in place that I hadn't had there before, like uh, routine over the ball, um, routine uh, in practicing, how to practice better. Uh, just different games that I would play with myself on the practice tee rather than just hitting golf balls. Mm. Um, so uh, Rotella definitely had a big uh, influence mm -hmm. on me uh, moving from finishing second to, to winning in the end, for sure. And do you think sort of having that routine and, and something you could trust, did that sort of free you up because you were controlling what you could control and then could just sort of let it go and, and see what happened yeah um so so i look at amateurs today and and i could see sometimes he takes two practice swings over a putt sometimes three sometimes four sure. um and so there's never that that routine that uh, that consistency and and once you do develop a routine or you know where there's two practice swings just make sure you do it the same every time and and just trust what you're doing because that's why you practice on the driving range and mm. play on the golf course. So you have to yeah. be able to leave your, your range game on the range and, and bring your athletic game to the golf course yeah. and not try and play a practice game on the golf course. Go out there and be athletic. Um, and, and routine definitely helps um, if you can incorporate that into your game. Yeah, it's interesting that you that you say like sometimes you know amateurs do take a couple more practice swings than they perhaps normally do. But in your case, if you if you faced with a particularly tricky putt, let's say on the seventy second hole to to win an event, and you like 
perhaps unsure of the line or there's an element of doubt, will you stick to that whatever your whatever you whatever your pre-shot routine is? Will you always stick to it? Yeah, I, I, you know, I sort of love that challenge to sort of fake it. You know, if you don't believe it, just imagine it, it is true. Mm. Um, they, you know, there's a saying that goes, it's better to be decisive than to be correct. Sure. Yeah, that's so, actually, I can definitely yeah, so, add to that. Yeah, so, you know, and, and, and golf is like life. You know, um, you have to make decisions. Um, uh, I have to make a decision every time I hit a golf ball. Is it a four iron? Is it a five iron? You know, am I confident? Am I not confident? So, um, uh, again, just you, you got to make the decision. You got to believe it's right and then pull the trigger. Uh, sort of Bernard Langer asked me the other day, I was interviewing him about a putting uh, ideas and then he asked me a question and he said, you know, what is, uh, what is the most important thing uh, that you feel about putting? I said, the most important thing to me about putting is deciding where I'm going to hit this putt, straight, left to right, right to left, pick sure. my spot. Uh, and once you're comfortable with choosing the line, you can make a confident stroke. If you try, if you're second guessing yourself over a putt, you're never going to make a perfect, well, I say perfect stroke, but just give yourself a chance to make a perfect stroke. Yeah. And, 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 and what Rotella taught me was, um, the more you, you try and do it. And when you catch yourself, second guessing yourself is walk away and start mm. over again, but walk yeah. in there with a positive. Yeah, make up your mind behind the shot and then see the shot. Don't get over the ball and have a couple of spider webs. You know, you're in your own way. Is You know, you always used to say, get out of your way. Meaning, yep. you know, just get those uh, spider webs out of your mind mm. and, uh, and, and step back. And the more you step back and start over, the more you start believing, you know, this routine that you're in is right. Yeah. And out of interest, are you are you more of a sort of feel-based player rather than being like overly analytical, or what is your general approach? Yeah, I, I you know, I would say one thing, and people would say, "Oh no, that's not true. That's not like you." <laughs> but um, um, yeah, I would I would go through stages where when I'd struggle with my game, I would be um, mechanical and technical on the mm. course, and yep. then. When I have it, I would, uh, I would just, you know, feel really, really strong and powerful, and and not let anything affect me. I yep. would think of other things on the course rather than golf, and I think okay. that is important too. Not to just think about golf while you're out there. You can't focus on your game for five hours around. Mm. Just try and focus on on the shot at hand. Just two minutes before you're going to hit it. Yeah. Um, and and again, not try and. Uh, over focus out there um but i've been both I, i've been over analytical sometimes and then um and sometimes i'm really comfortable just not thinking about anything and tell me about the role that your the the caddies you've had over the years like what sort of role they've played in, in helping you sort of take your mind off the round sort of in between shots yeah um you know, I had a, a long stint with Basil, um, and I think the two personalities should should gel out there. Um, yeah. I would be on the edge, and the caddy would be, oh, so what, man? You know, uh, I, I'd be, you know, overcritical about myself, and 
and then the caddy would say, "Oh, well, it's okay. Just, just, just yeah. let's go the next shot." You know, so it's nice to have that balance. You don't want to have two guys on fire. You know, it's okay if one guy's on fire, yeah. the other one bumps him down. So um, I had uh, my the one guy that caddied me, Nick DePaul. He was on fire like I was, and and I don't think the two two helped. As I say, Basil was. So it's good to have somebody like that 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 calms you down. Um, Sun City, Basil and I did really well. We were just comfortable um, with uh, with the uh, you know being at home and, and having the crowds around us. That was great. Mm. Um, but you know, mostly you do the preparation during your practice round. Uh, you sure. prepare. Uh, you prepare how to play the golf course. You decide on uh, okay, it's a three wood on this hole. It's a driver on this hole. It's an iron on this hole off the tee, and and stick to your game plan. So that's I think that was important, uh, and I. I really picked that up from uh, Raymond Floyd. Okay. He was a he, yeah. was, he was a he was a stickler for uh, playing his practice round and and committing the tournament play to what he studied and practiced in the in the regular play. You know, so on a par five, if you know you can't go for it, you know you're not going to go for it in two. You mm. know, be committed to lay back to that yardage that. That you uh, that you're good at 85, sure. 90 yards. If it's if it's that club, just sure. and I tell my caddies, you know, if I can't get there in two, just always give me the two numbers, 85 mm. to the pin or 105 to the pin. Yeah, yeah. That's where I that's where my strength is with my wedges, and you know, um, and then stick to that game plan. And do you think it was your your um, short game? I know you mentioned earlier that. It's always been a strength of yours, but was it your short game that helped you um, have so much success at Sun City? Because obviously, I mean, certainly my understanding of the course that I've sort of grown up knowing is it's quite long and it's quite it's quite tough. If you're not straight off the tee, whatever, it can be very, very penalizing. What did you What did you find sort of worked for you there? Yeah, I mean, you have all those clovers on the golf course, um, so the pins always tucked. And you know, being a being a good putter, I always felt I didn't have to go at the pins. I could go a little right, a little left, and and try and make a twenty or fifteen foot putt. Um, but uh, you know, in, in in talking about the putting, so that's why I said he. You had to be accurate off the tees. You had to play for certain parts of the fairway, um, and I was very patient when it came to that. Yeah. So, so that helped me a lot at Sun City. And then, you know, just talking about putting, putting would, if my game wasn't on, I could still have a good finish in the tournament, and and my putting would, would obviously um, be the key there. And then when I did have a good ball striking week, I could take it up a notch and and win the tournament. Yeah, so I also read that in 2005, you actually, I don't know if it's since been broken, but at the time you held the uh, putting record for a tour event, I think you had 92 putts over 72 holes. Like, at that at that point in time, like when you, you know, when you're making pretty much everything, what, how much are you thinking and how much are you, are you just sort of letting it flow and, and just sort of letting things um, fall as, as they may? Yeah, I set the putting record. I think it was 94. Uh, 94, then Wikipedia clearly. No, no you know, uh, you could be right. You could be right. Uh, because 94, Justin Rose wasn't around. And uh, 
Um, yeah, you could be right. Uh, I played the final round with Justin Rose when I when I did get the phone call after the round that I set the putting record. But yeah, um, I think there's certain uh, golf courses where your putter, um, you know, if you're using the same putter, uh, mm. some guys change putters with different grasses. Uh, some guys use the same putter from start to finish. But uh, yeah, as I say, certain greens uh, definitely suit your putter. And uh, that, that tournament uh, was at Hilton Head, and I just had the right putter for those greens. It, it just rolled yeah. the ball beautifully. Um, I, that's a, it's a long story what happened that week, but uh, I'd lost my clubs going to South Africa uh, oh, weeks prior to that. And I got to the tournament, and I had no clubs. I had to build everything from scratch. Uh, the clubs just went missing. And uh, I remember picking up a putter on the practice tee, on the putting green on the Wednesday, and it was a, a never compromise model. And I just felt good, and off I went with that putter, and that's what I set the record with. That's wild. So it's, yeah. it's, it must be quite cool to, to know that something good came out of a pretty annoying situation, actually. Uh, yes, I remember coming off the course, and I got a phone call, and the guy said, uh, my name is so-and-so from the PGA Media Room. I just called to tell you that you set the PGA to a putting record. And I said, oh, really? So what do I get for that? Is there a money payout? And he said, no, there's no no payout. Yeah. I said, oh, well, thanks for the call in any case. And uh, But I've had a lot of bragging rights since then. No, no, for sure. I mean, that's that's a pretty, pretty cool record to to have but sort of shifting to to team golf for a bit um obviously you played on the on the uh the first president's cup side or the first international president's cup side in 94. what what are your impressions of, of that first event and you know what do you what do you think about how like how it's evolved uh, i'm gonna get to that in a minute i, I just want you to okay. whenever you see peter todd again you ask him uh because Peter loved gambling on the golf course. And uh, my first interprov was at uh, Bloemfontein. And I okay. was on Peter's side. And Peter wanted to take uh, a couple of guys for for a little bit of a nine-hole putting session. And he couldn't believe I beat him. He'd never been beaten on the putting green before. So when you see him, ask him about that one. I, I will do 100%. 100%. But uh, getting back to the, uh, uh, the President's Cup, you know, we don't play much uh, team golf as a professional. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what made it, um, you know, the Ryder Cup obviously is a is a big deal for European golfers and American golfers, yeah. And for 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 us, the um, rest of the world, as we called, um, it was nice for us to to compete as a team and 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 especially against top American golfers, yeah. So uh, so starting that tournament out and and just going to the White House. Um, uh, it was uh, was really special, really special. Yeah, and what do you think? What do you think the international side need to need to do to make it a bit more of a contest going forward? Yeah, the uh, the Americans are really tough when it comes to singles uh, on Sundays, um, and uh, the Europeans. You know, I think uh, they came very close this year. They had a big lead in the in the in the bed better ball and the foursomes games yeah so you, you, that's the only thing you can do is try and build up a big lead on um uh thursday friday saturday for mm -hmm. for those singles on sunday and then you know 
and also the luck of the draw on Sundays, uh, you know, who, who plays who is, uh, yeah. is also uh, something that, uh, that can count for, for and against you. So, you know, sometimes you, you stack the, the good players out early thinking that you're going to get the momentum and then uh, the Americans come and, and become very aggressive. And they're all good players. The, the thing is, they have the, they have so much depth in those, yeah. in those singles uh, that it it really helps them a lot. No, for sure. And I think, yeah, I mean, I've always got the impression that the internationals are sort of also playing catch up from a cultural standpoint because obviously they're all from such different backgrounds that it's like difficult. There's not like one sort of unifying language or, or whatever. There's it's difficult yeah. to to find much commonality. Um, yeah, you know, uh, you're competing with them year in and year out. So, uh, I mean, and the, the Europe, the, the rest of the world does do a good job in the, in the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they just don't do a good job on the Sunday. And, um, I, again, all I can say is that the Americans have just so much depth, uh, on, yeah. on in the singles. Yeah, for sure. So this is actually a question that I got from, um, Mark Hitchcock, he wants to know, would would you, in, in your opinion, do you feel you would be an appropriate choice as a future President's Cup captain, um, given that you've, I mean, you've been a pro for 35 plus years, you've won more than 30 events around the world, et cetera, et cetera. You've played on two teams yourself. Is that something that, that you would ever, that you would ever want to take up? Oh, uh, lovely question. Uh, uh, and I know Mark, uh, thanks Mark, but, uh, um, you know, I think it's a bit late now. Uh, the younger guys, you know, I think, uh, are, that are still in touch with what happens on the regular tour and uh, that have just come off the tour. I think they're in touch with the players. They, um, and I think it's time for, it's a better time for guys when he's between 45 and 50, where he's, not competing as much uh, sure. on the PGA Tour, not on the Senior Tour yet. So, as it's turned out, um, of late, the last, you know, Nick Price was there, I suppose. Uh, Ernie was there last, uh, the last yeah. time. Uh, Trevor the next time. So, um, yeah, it's a bit late now. I, I would have loved to have been one, um, mm. but uh, but it's a bit late now. Yeah, and um, it's interesting, hey, because. You, I think you won in, in 99 was one of your last regular um, tour victories. And then, yeah, the 40, your, your 40s were, were a bit of a tougher time. What, what would, you, would, would you put that down to? Was it just a case of, you know, the guys coming through were uh, longer and, and, yeah, just generally a bit more athletic? Or what, what would you put that down to? Yeah, if you if you look at the uh, if you look at the, uh, the the age that people uh, or golfers would peak um, when I started out, it was you know thirty thirty five. Sure. Uh, you know, I was twenty four five when I joined the PGA Tour, and, and as I say, the guys peaked at thirty thirty five. Now you got guys peaking at twenty five. Um, yeah. They just they just simply uh, introduced to play golf on TV uh, a lot earlier you know they by the time they get to the pga tour they got so much more experience um 
and and you know they got you got the corn ferry tour right now you got the challenge tour in europe you're always exposed to 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 the cameras and then as i say you get onto the main stage and you don't feel threatened at all so yeah. by the time you get there you're ready to go um, um so so it's brought down the uh, uh the the age of 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 being in top form uh, at your peak a lot lot younger and and as a result you get pushed out mm. you know that's why the the champions still started at 50 if they would start today they started at 45 yeah yeah uh, so um but yeah i just uh in my in in you know when i got to my 40s um i'd always had to motivate myself uh you know i was my own coach so to speak off the golf course uh you know, I, I, I find, uh, you know, stupid things to motivate me by, whether it was diet or exercise uh, or just routines around making a, a golf swing in the bedroom, in the hotel room. So mm. there were a lot of things I had to motivate myself by, and I've had to do that for 40 years. So, yeah. um, and then uh, when I lost my card in the U.S. in 2006, I didn't want to remain in the U.S. and and play on the on the on the Hogan tour back then, which is the Corn Ferry today. Uh, yeah. That would have that would have made me look like an ex PGA tour player. Sure. And I didn't want to be an ex PGA tour player, so I went to Europe. I went to Europe. I was seven, eight, and nine. Um, uh, I got invites for the first two tournaments, and I made enough money at the Madeira uh, tournament. I finished second there when I was forty-seven years old, which which gave me uh, enough money to then play for the rest of the year. And I kept my card as seven, eight and, and nine came back over here. But, but I, I was able to compete with uh, the likes of uh, Rory McIlroy, Martin Keimer, mm. uh, Danny Willett, all these guys were just coming out. So yeah. uh, it was nice for me to, to see these guys play and, and feel like almost rejuvenated uh, playing with uh, these young superstars. And would you, would you say that the courses in, in Europe are slightly more forgiving from a length standpoint than, than the States? Um, they were back in the day. Uh, yeah. But I think uh, they, the, the tour has taken golf to uh, golf courses that, that do uh, measure up to the American standards. Mm. And that's why, the, that's why the, the Europeans have become so successful in Ryder Cup. Yeah. And that, that, that first victory in your first full season on the Champions Tour must have been, you know, it must have been amazing to you know, be back in the winner's circle and have that feeling again, have that rush of being in contention. It must have been outstanding. Yeah, you know, you go through your, your moments of doubt when you're between 45 and 50, you know, is, am I ever going to get there again? And, sure. Um, uh, and then uh, you start on the Champions Tour, and I started uh, in September of '09 is when I started, and I think it took me maybe six months before I won. Yeah. But um, but luckily for me, I stayed competitive between 45 and 50, as I say, competing in Europe. Um, and then uh, I started out, um, you know, I played uh, played consistent golf on the Champions Tour, and and I just. Uh, got on fire that uh, that one tournament in in minnesota where i actually um i had a one-shot lead starting 
Sunday with Mark Kalkovacca in the last group. And I, I went uh, birdie, birdie, eagle, par birdie the first five holes okay. that we started out. I was nine under three, 11 holes. And uh, I took a, a big lead. And, you know, what I did that day, um, I had this big lead. And I thought to myself, well, there's no ways that my game can go so far this way and his game so far that way. And, he, and we catch up and him beat me. So. Mm. So I thought, what I'm going to do the last, uh, I say, as I was nine under three, 11 holes, I was just going to change my game plan. I was going to play fairways and greens going in. Yeah. And if, if I just did that, um, I couldn't lose. Um, so that's what I did. I, I changed my game plan and, and I fairways and greens. I got to the last hole, hit the fairway, hit the fairway, hit the green, and I made the putt for Eagle on the par five, which I, I shot at 61 that day. Wow. Um, but. Yes, and then uh, you know, starting out winning, uh, winning like that. Uh, uh, as I say, you, you think you uh, you're never going to do it again, but mm. uh, but somehow you know, there's another saying that goes, "Talent never goes away." So I yeah. tell that to a lot of people um, because you were there back in the day. You still have that talent, and you sure. just got to believe it. You just got to believe it, um, and. You know, and you have the guys out there that you're playing with week in and week out, and you can see, oh, gee, that guy won, and and I feel I played with him last week, so mm -hmm. so I feel I can win too. So, you know, you have a lot of these positives that are out there, and and you you just got to believe it. Yeah, and I've listened to I mean, I've listened to quite a few podcasts with Champions Tour guys, and they've all sort of said that people don't realize how ultra competitive the Champions Tour actually is. Like Amazing. guys want to literally beat each other as much at at fifty as as they did when they were twenty five. Uh, the guys aren't scared scared to win on the Champions Tour. I yeah. um, I was playing uh, about three or four years ago in uh, North Carolina. We played a tournament and I finished my round. I was four shots clear of Russ Cochran. And Ross birdied the last five holes to beat me by one shot. Jeez. That's insane. <laughs> so, you know, these guys have all won before. They're not scared to win. And that's yeah. why they call the champions, the, the champions tour now. Um, as I say, a, you know, they know what it takes to win and, and, and they're not scared to, to go for it. What do you think has, has been the, I mean, not only to, not only the key to your longevity, but someone like Bernard Langer, who, you know, is obviously still super, super competitive, winning often. What do you think it has, has been the key to his longevity, for example? Well, uh, I mean, he's very committed, very dedicated. Um, he doesn't drink very much. He doesn't smoke at all. He's, uh, yeah. His golf is his life. He's focused on it. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of guys are too, but uh, he's just super dedicated. Um, and, I, and, and, and his body is held up well, too, which, um, you know, he, you can say what you like. He, he has good genes as well to, to age well. Some guys do not. He's, uh, and I'm not taking anything away from his uh, workout regimen. He, uh, he, he works hard on and off the course. He's in the fitness van before and after his round um, yeah. religiously. Um, and not just light workout. He, he does nice, uh, nice workouts. And stays fit, uh, and he's very motivated. 
very dedicated um and and that's what it takes but it also gives uh guys like me hope as well and 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 he motivates me i feel i feel well if he can uh, push himself like that i can push myself too so uh, I, I mean, I've got other interests as well, uh, which uh, which I enjoy. I enjoy other interests, whereas uh, again, not taking anything away from the guys that that that, that do just play golf. Um, you know, I enjoy the other things in life too. Obviously, one of those is is your wine label. I mean, just sort of chatting about that for a bit. What? You know what inspired you to to start that, and and tell me about the sort of growth of the label over the last couple of decades. Well, I was raised on a on a vineyard between Stellenbosch uh, and Cape Town. Um, my mother uh, grew up on a grape a vineyard herself. Her grandfather owned a farm that was uh, originally called uh, Saxonburg, and it's still a, a vineyard today. That was established in 1693. Um, he owned it in 1932. So I grew up a mile from there, and it was just in my blood growing up. Uh, the, the growing up in the vineyards, you know, and even in Paul, you drive through the vineyards all the time. It's just sure. something that's in my DNA, so to speak. And then in '94, I bought my own vineyard. Uh, my my brother Michael uh, and I, uh, well, he ran it and. And I promoted the. Uh, we we made our first label in '97. So, um, and and it's just been something that I've enjoyed over the years. I didn't really drink much when I was a top competitor. Um, maybe a glass here and there. Uh, it's gone from a glass to maybe three glasses a night. <laughs> but uh, I've enjoyed the you know I've I've enjoyed the exposure that the uh, that golf has given me. Uh, and and targeted at, at at my wine label. So um, I've had a I've sold my wineries since then, but I've gone into partnership with wineries that that can produce for me, and and I do the selection of the of the uh, wines uh, that are under the label that I bring out. Um, and I and I enjoy that side of it. I understand I understand what it takes to make a good vintage. I understand uh, the nuances of of. of winemaking so uh, you know i enjoy that side of it yeah and i suppose it, it gives you like a nice balance to your life rather than you know just being 100 percent focused on, on your goal yeah i mean golf's going to end uh, someday when i'm not going to be competing like like i want to at the level i want to i'm not sure hitting the ball is i'm not i say i say this uh, i'm not hitting this ball as far as the young guys are hitting it, I'm hitting it further than I've ever hit it, but that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these young guys hit the ball 330 yards, and, and I'm hitting it to 280 sometimes, 285. Mm. Um, and um, again, in 1986 on tour, my average was 258. Now I'm hitting okay. it 280. So, um, yeah. But then again, those other guys are hitting it 330. Yeah, I know. It's, it's <laughs> Absolutely insane. And I mean, especially what someone like Bryson DeChambeau is doing at the moment is bizarre. I mean, I don't know how sort of sustainable that is, but we'll see. Yeah, I don't know how his body can hold up to that uh, for 20 years. Yeah. But, um, but uh, we're yeah. nearly an hour in, and I haven't asked you about the uh, 
the win in 2013 at the, at the region's tradition. Um, yeah, just take me there and take me to that final round. I mean, what what was the scenario going into uh, that Sunday? Yeah, it was uh, very nerve wracking. I, I, I was I was feeling comfortable with my game, um, and and I built up a little bit of a lead on the back nine. I had a two-shot lead with uh, four holes to play. Uh, couples then birdies 15. Uh, it's really close, about two feet. And the siren goes for bad weather in the area, so we go back to the clubhouse. Now I'm yeah. sitting on a one-shot lead, you know, and I've got all this time to think about it, uh, which was uh, not a good feeling. Uh, you'd rather be out there playing than sitting in the clubhouse thinking about a lead. And everybody, well, not everybody, but a couple of players would say, so how much is your lead right now? And I was saying it's only one shot, you know. So that's playing up in your mind. Then we get back out and uh, we get to 16th and past three at Shoal Creek. And incidentally, a great golf course. Lee Trevino won the PGA there. Wayne Grady won the PGA there. Um, and I I hit it about, uh, Couples was up first because he birdied 15. He hit it 12 feet, I hit it 15 feet. I made my putt for birdie and then he made his putt for birdie. Uh, six seventeen par five. Um, uh, he had a colossal drive down there, and I hit it in the fairway bunker. I laid up. It was a par five. You had to. Uh, uh, your second was over a creek, and uh, I laid up. He then had a good chance to make birdie, going for the green, and just blew it way right of the green and couldn't get it up and down. And I made a par, and then eighteen was. Uh, uh, the key was your drive. We both hit good drives, and he hit it to about uh, 10 feet. I hit it to 9 feet, and he missed his putt, and I had the the fortunate uh, pleasure of uh, two putting from 9 feet to win my first major. So, uh, And and uh, beating Couples was also, also um, extra special. You know, the one thing about Fred Couples is he lives in California. He was raised in Seattle. But wherever he goes in America, you feel you're playing against the local player. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he's so loved by, by people wherever he goes mm. that uh, you, know, you can go from New York to San Diego and everybody just loves following Freddie. You know, and you just hear Freddie, Freddie all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so you can never think he's not at home on home turf. Yeah, it's a pity to see what what I mean the injuries he's battled the last few years, because he's clearly I mean obviously his class is undeniable. But was it was it that much more satisfying to to beat him under those circumstances and in an environment where you know everyone was a massive fan of his? Well, I I, I knew I could do it before the tournament because I uh, I had won a tournament, uh, I'd say, uh, a month prior to that in Newport Beach, California, where yeah. I won and he finished second by five shots. Oh, okay. So I had a bit of a, uh, and funny enough, my brother Sam was caddying for me at Newport Beach and my brother Michael was caddying for me at the 2013 in Shoal Creek. Oh, that's um, wild. And uh, so we had a bit of a momentum. Uh, couples as caddy hated the frosts after that after that win at Shoal Creek, but yeah, just to say that uh, I did have a bit of uh, uh, comfort uh, playing him at Shoal Creek because I'd, I'd won a month earlier. 
yeah and so I mean now you you're 60 and you've achieved so much in the game so what what left I mean rather what drives you to to keep competing well you know just the again you talk about Langer you know Langer yeah. 61 61 62 is a bit older than I am you know things like that uh, you think well if he can do it I can still do it um, sure. that that's one and then and then the equipment today you know um, today we have you know golf balls that, that, that go a long way you have uh, you know if you were using a, an extra stiff shaft you maybe step it down and use a, a regular stiff shaft and still get the distance that you want mm. um, I'll still feel that I'm a good putter out there if I'm not going to win, I can still, you know, make a decent uh, amount of money uh, every year um, since I'm still exempt on the Champions Tour uh, through my through my uh, uh, career money list uh, on the PGA Tour. I have a, uh, a all-time exempt uh, status on the PGA Senior Champions Tour. So okay. with that with that exemption, I don't feel pressured into keeping my card. I can still go out there and, and, and play, you know, not relaxed golf, but but I can still uh, yeah. not be under pressure and not be under pressure and play. So, in a way, that that just motivates me. Um, and then, uh, and in just playing golf with uh, with different guys today. A couple of days ago, I played with Eric Van Ruyen. Um, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Fun, fun, um, uh, super golfer, you know, he's. he's He's only 30 years old, and uh, the way they're hitting the ball today um, is also something that motivates you. Uh, but I still outputt them, you know, and, and that also keeps me motivated. So I love, uh, I love still being in the game. And, and uh, again, as I say, the equipment is there for you to um, uh, automatically improve your game, so to speak. Um, and I still, you know, I still, I'm not injured. Uh, yeah. And that also uh, allows me to to play week in and week out. We we might have a, a I look at my calendar. We might have a a stretch this year where we're going to have eight or nine tournaments in a row. Wow! Uh, of tournaments that have been filled up on empty weeks. So um, that's going to be uh, it's going to be nice to be out there just competing week in and week out. And yeah. and that's what motivates me. I've got a calendar, and I try and you know play my tournaments where, as I say, I'm exempt. Mm. And you know when you get when you get the I mean obviously most of the events are Friday Saturday Sunday but when the when the draw comes out early in the week who who do you most look forward to to playing with? Uh, I've been asked that question many times. Uh, you know what's your what's your favorite guy to play with? Uh, sure. And I never uh, I never um, disliked or liked anybody to play with. Um, the only thing that irritated me was playing with guys that that, that complain. Oh, gee, that putt broke left. I thought it was going to break right. And you're mm -hmm. on the same line as him, you know. So you think, yeah. oh, geez, you know, he was aiming left and it broke right. So yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's that's the only thing that I uh, and and most of the guys, you know, and all of them are very professional when it comes to playing the game. You know, they say good shot to you. You say good shot to them. Mm -hmm. um, you don't really get into big conversations out there playing. Because sure. a lot of times you, well, I learned my lesson um, long ago. You, you can do some idle chatter, but to get into heavy conversations, you know, you might just find yourself, oh, geez, I, 
I'm right on top of my ball. I didn't have a time to, to sort of yeah, yeah. Um, do my calculations whether I'm walking to the hole and I can feel the wind blow. Um, I, I see it's a it's a little uphill, you know, things like that. You you calculate uh, before you hit the shot. So, so I like to, to maybe chit chat to your caddy, but not to get into conversations. And as a result, it was never a uh, a big thing for me who I play with. Sure. So just uh, uh, you know, one thing, one thing that's uh, uh, coming down the stretch on the Sunday, uh, and I've had guys. Uh, I remember Steve Jones in '89 when I won the World Series. Uh, he was out of it, and I had to par the last two holes to get to a playoff in Crenshaw. Mm. He egged me on and said, "Hey, just you know, stick to your uh, focus hard. You got two holes to go. You could you could win, you know." And uh, I remember I remember that and. As a result, I've tried to bring that to other players if I don't have a chance to win, and they do. Yeah. So I learned something like that way back, and uh, and just something that uh, that the guys do out there encourage somebody if you know you don't have a chance to win. Yeah, but I'm sure when when it is quite tight, you and and there's only like and it's between the two of you or whatever, and there's like one shot in it. I'm sure there's absolutely zero chatter taking place. <laughs> uh yes yes you you you're in your own little mode right then and you're not thinking about anybody else mm. no for sure so i mean you've been super generous with, with your time through some very interesting technical issues but so just a couple of um quick fire questions and then we'll let you get on with your with your day so um let's just have a look here sorry i was going to pull them up here um so who's the most complete player you've you've played with over the years? Um, again, uh, I never looked at who was the most complete player because I didn't think there was one that had all the parts of the game. But what I liked oh. to uh, summarize was which guy had had the perfect part of the game in, in certain mm. categories. Yeah. So who was the best driver? Who was the best three-wood player? Who was the best long iron player? Mid, yeah. mid player, putter? That, that kind of thing. So, uh, I mean, Sevi had had a couple of parts of the perfect player. You know, he was, uh, uh, he was great from, from a hundred yards in, he had the, all the wedge game and he had the, and he had the putting game. Um, Ben Crenshaw had a long, uh, graceful putting stroke. Um, and, and he was an amazing lag putter, also a great putter. Um, you know, so Tiger Woods, from I played with him one year at Westchester, and there were a couple of par fives where you had to hit two irons into the green, um, and he would hit a two iron and carry it, you know, high up in the air. It was just brilliant at that. And also at Muirfield Village, Jack Nicholas's golf course, fifteenth mm. um, hole was a par five. A par five. Uh, he would carry that two iron like like no one else could. Um, you know, Tiger, he just had a lot of grit. Um, and I was fortunate to play with him as well. Uh, you know, he, I mean, he, again, he was not a, a guy that would play, you know, perfect golf. He did, he did one offline. Um, uh, I'll say not many times, but he would. So, so he was never the perfect, uh, golfer out there either. Um, uh, Jack Nicholas, I had a chance to compete with, and I, if I would say, the most complete golfer it would have been him. Um, okay.
confirmed that Sevi had. Yeah, sorry, you, you broke up a bit there. Would you mind just repeating that? So, so, so Jack, uh, I played with Jack Nicholas, uh, um, but he would he didn't have the short game that Sevi had. But if I were to have chosen a, a golfer that had the complete game, it would have been Jack. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he he really did have all of the all of the attributes, but. If there was, if there was one aspect of, I mean, if you look at the guys that you compete against now, if there was one aspect of someone else's game that you would most like to have as your own, who who would it be, and what would the department of the game be? be? Yes, I'll tell you what. That's a difficult question. You get, you get Rory McIlroy, uh, who just blisters the ball. Uh, I was fortunate enough to play Colonial two weeks ago uh, in in Fort Worth, and. Uh, Spent some time on the driving range with uh, hitting my balls, warming up, and then watching guys like McElroy, Dustin Johnson, uh, Justin Thomas, uh, Phil Mickelson, um, uh, uh, Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, you got Justin Thomas who comes out of his shoes when he hits the ball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, McElroy. Um, you know, McElroy's a superb player. Uh, I just don't like the putter he uses. I, I don't like the, um, I don't like that's the, the style of putter that that swings the putt for you. I like, I like it when you allow your stroke sure. uh, to swing the putter. Uh, I think sure. a lot of guys use that putter because it, somebody else has used it, and I think McElroy will do better if he had a different putter. Um, something that swings more inside out rather than square back and, and open through. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, I was really impressed with um, with Phil Mickelson's game still. You know, he still has length on the backswing, which at 50 years old, um, you know, is rare. Yeah. But, but uh, uh, he impressed me. His ball striking impressed me. Uh, Dustin Johnson just, I mean, you hit the golf, they hit the golf ball and, and it just, it gets small very fast. You know, yeah, once yeah. it takes off, it very yeah. fast becomes a, uh, speck, yeah. a, a, a speck, a, a, a dot. So, <laughs> um, it's really impressive to see these guys play. And, and again, um, in 2009, 10, I went to Europe, um, and, and got to play with these guys, but now having seen these guys at uh at colonial two weeks ago uh it's just uh it's a sight for sore eyes man yeah no it must be it must be amazing to you know obviously you want you've wanted colonial before it must be weird to to see how differently the guys approach the course now as opposed to to when when you won um in the 90s yeah. i mean they don't care there's there's no trouble. They just hit the driver where, wherever they want to. We used to lay up on Schoenpah Falls to have an angle to go into the green. They just take all the bunkers out of play today. Any bunker under uh, under 300 yards, they don't even think about it twice. Yeah. Just... <laughs> and then, yeah, just... They'll just, uh... they'll just take on any bunker. Yeah, de definitely. And then just finally, um, do you have any superstitions on, on the course? <laughs> um, 
So I, I, I just play with golf balls that are um, numbers one, two, four. Okay. I like to play, uh, if, if I've ever three round tournament, I use a number three for the first round, number two, the second round, number one, the final round. Um, oh, that's very interesting. If it's four rounds, I have a, a four through one. And yeah. then um, I played a, I played a, uh, just a round of golf one time at session with a, a guy by the name of Ian Palmer. Ian Palmer is a pro that I kind of uh, cut my teeth with. Him and I, we traveled Europe together, and he's a pro at uh, Schumann Park in Bloemfontein. Mm. And I used I used a green tee one day, and, and I hit a bad shot. And Ian said to me, never use a green tee. It's, not a, it's, it's bad luck to use a green tee. And since that day, I never used the green tee. <laughs> um, but those are my only superstitions. I know some guys, they go to the same restaurant uh, they went to the night before if they had a good round. Um, and they have another good round, they go back to the same place again. So yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, and foods, uh, I'm not really superstitious when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I don't, I don't have superstitions. I don't have coins. Some people have only this coin that they mark with. They only mark with it. They only mark with it heads up. Some mark with the tails up. Yeah. So, uh, there are a lot of guys like that. Some people carry the coin only in their right pocket, only in their left pocket. Uh, I don't really have many superstitions now. Okay, cool. And yeah, what is your schedule looking like? I mean, when are you when are you hoping to get back out there? I mean, when is the champions starting back up? Yeah, we start out the second. Uh, uh, sorry, the last week in July in Michigan okay. is when we start out, and uh, then uh, we have two weeks off, and then uh, we get going again. So it'll be fun being out there again. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Well. Best of luck with that, and thank you so, so much for your time. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was, it was fantastic to have you on the show. Hey, it was my pleasure, Craig, and uh, all the best. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep watching your other shows that you uh, broadcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you okay. so, so much. Take care. Cool. You bye. too. Cheers. Bye.